Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. This session of Congress continues to be paralyzed by partisan squabbles and Republican infighting, especially in the House. Today's episode from The Silo is a conversation between Norman Cavita about the beginning of this troubled session of Congress. Please enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. And he is extremely pissed. And Dr. Kavita Patel. This could be literally the start of fiscal hell. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we are heading into another election cycle coming out of the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing or not saying about them. Today, we want to talk about a wide range of topics. Norm, uh, on our last podcast, uh, it seemed like you know we were uh, hanging on the edge of our seats, it's a joke, uh, waiting for a speaker after rounds and rounds. We have one, Kevin McCarthy. So we thought we would devote this episode in our public time to the actual business of Congress now that they have a speaker and that we've got some leadership in place. So we want to cover that. And then Norm and I, we were thinking that uh, in our members only section, we could talk about something that I think a lot of folks in both of our circles, I imagine, Norm, you tell me, have been speaking about around what's emerged from a special counsel being appointed for the Biden papers and, and the investigation that is pursuant to that and some of the other ripple effects that the recent headlines around documents found in various locations, but some sensitive, some not, have unearthed for both Democrats and Republicans. So, Norm, how has your inaugural week under Speaker McCarthy been in, in your estimation? Tell me, tell me your thoughts and, and just give us a rundown on, as you see it, what's, what's happened in Congress. Well, First, uh, let me give a hat tip to you, Kavita, because I was more skeptical about McCarthy making it. And that was because I know 
a very large number of his members hold him in contempt. When uh, Matt Gates said, uh, I got nothing else to ask for, it was a pretty good clue. But of course, it took till the 15th ballot and it almost fell apart. If in fact, uh, I believe Gates had not signaled what he did after the 14th ballot, if they had adjourned at that point, I think McCarthy would have been toast. It would have been uh, pretty clear that these other people weren't moving, but they clearly got what they wanted. And we don't know yet all of what they got. But a few things to talk about. We can talk about the rules. One thing I just want to highlight for people, there's a lot of gossip going around about Vern Buchanan is a very, very wealthy auto dealer from Sarasota, Florida who was in line by seniority to be chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And he was bypassed for a younger person who's close to McCarthy, and he is extremely pissed. And there has been some speculation, at least, that he might just resign. We know that the serial liar George Santos is being backed by McCarthy, but that an increasing number of... uh, Republicans in the House, as well as the Westchester County uh, Republican Party, are calling for his resignation. I mention those things because keep in mind that with a majority of four, McCarthy is also on thin ice. And I want to add one other little note. Um, I get this newsletter from Puck, another news source, with members saying that in the cloakrooms, there are people hacking and coughing that during the four days of concern about whether McCarthy would make it, there were large numbers of members who turned up who probably should not have. Some of them might have tested positive for COVID. Many of the Republicans wouldn't test. And if we get a COVID outbreak, and if it's heavier among Republicans, since they're the non-vaxxed population, many of them, McCarthy's majority may slip away, at least for a period of time, for a couple of months or maybe a few weeks at least. So keep that in mind. Now, with that as an aside, the rules package that did get passed, and here we had one Republican vote against it, Tony Gonzalez, who's a conservative from Uvalde, and I think may have been deeply affected by the response of the Republican Party to Uvalde. And he, you know, stood his ground and voted against it. Nancy Mace, who is always trotted out on cable news as the Republican moderate, which is journalistic malpractice, said she was uneasy about the rules package and then voted for it. And then she said, I don't like the fact that the first two bills we're bringing up are about abortion. That's an issue that's really bad for us. This is bad to do. And then voted for both of them. So. They got everybody else to vote for a rules package that included some really obnoxious provisions, including the evisceration of the ethics process. But there are also a few things in that rules package that could be positive. They open up the House some more. If they follow through, we may get more amendments on the floor. We may actually get some genuine debate, which has been gone for a very long time. We may get some power moving from a speaker who should not have power, to committees. And it's possible, at least on some of the issues that are a little bit below the radar, including things like mental health, 
and maybe even one issue that is above the radar or on the radar screen, which is fentanyl, where the desire to do something that isn't just bashing the border, but to actually deal with the real set of problems around the country, we may get some bipartisan action. So it's not entirely bad, but it was an obnoxious package as a whole. They could have gotten a few people who privately were appalled by the rules package to vote against it, and then they'd have to go back and redo a little bit. McCarthy, I'm sure, put an enormous amount of pressure on because of his fear that every part of that rules package was something that he had used to get support to become speaker, take any part of it out and it all might unravel for him. But we're going to have to live with the bad parts as well as the good. And our history in the past is even when they pledge good things, being in session more, actually doing debate, allowing more amendments, fall by the wayside when the political realities, the brutal ones take over. So it might be worth kind of breaking down what's in the rules package to tease out a little bit of what you've already alluded to. So here's here's the th- kind of three or four things that stood out to me. Many people are probably now familiar with kind of PAYGO, or at least what Democrats had put into place for a kind of pay-as-you-go rule that we shorthanded and called PAYGO, basically requiring legislation that would add to the deficit to be offset with either a tax increase or a spending cut. In a majority of time, this resulted in tax increases. Well, the GOP in this rules package basically turned that into what um, I think Politico affectionately or people have been calling cut go, where basically mandatory spending can only be offset by equal or greater decreases in mandatory spending, meaning no new taxes and then, you know, spending cuts for mandatory programs. The GOP has done this before, so it's not like this is, you know, new news but that it just creates, I think, a very interesting dynamic that's going to get set up where they have to deal with the deficit and how to deal with the deficit which and the debt ceiling, which we can get to in a little bit. The other thing, the other thing that uh, kind of struck me was something called um, the Gephardt rule. So the Democrats had in place a mechanism to allow the House to automatically send a measure extending the debt limit to the Senate when it adopts a budget resolution. And this has been a way of like avoiding what the House wanted to avoid, both, but by the way, Republicans and Democrats, to have a direct vote on lifting the debt ceiling. And we'll talk about the debt ceiling probably as a kind of recurrent theme, because as in our last podcast, we alluded to the fact that this could be literally the start of fiscal hell if the United States defaults on its debt, which most of the time I would say, nope, no way, no how, that's insane. All you have to do is look at 15 rounds of trying to get a speaker to realize that, no, that's actually not that insane. But the return kind of taking away this Gephardt rule actually puts this potentially into play. Congress is going to have to deal with the debt ceiling sometime this spring. And then, you know, the other thing that kind of struck me was also just, I'll be honest, I actually had not remembered the Holman rule. And this is something that came from the 19th century that allowed Congress to, so Republicans revived something that I had not heard of or remembered called the Holman rule, where it allowed Congress to amend certain spend, any spending bill with the intent of salary reduction or employing termination or even cutting a specific program. I had to kind of look up this rule and maybe you can speak norm to anything else I missed in rules. Cause I know they had some oversight stuff that was also important, but those three things struck out to me. And 
I just have to be honest, like I didn't realize with Holman rule that the rule was actually used recently to reduce the salary of the administrator of the um, WPA, the Western, the United States Air, Western Power Administration, to reduce the salary of that administrator to $1. That proposal did not actually come into law, but it's incredibly disturbing that Republicans have put into or revived back into place a rule that literally could dismantle the federal workforce for carrying out any of these political agendas. And so this is where exactly what you said, that even getting taken down by one or two votes puts so much of this at play. But even if everybody is healthy and shows up, you have no idea where this could go. Anything else stick out in the package to you or just any thoughts about some of the things I highlighted that I missed that would be worth noting? Those are very good ones. Of course, they restoring the requirement that you need a three-fifths vote to do any tax increase adds to the crippling effect of elimination of the Gephardt rule. I will say one of the challenges that these Republicans are going to have is they have promised to introduce a balanced budget. That will have to include no tax increases, and it will mean cutting the federal budget by over a trillion dollars to get it into balance. And we know that 70% of that budget is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, farm subsidies, food stamps, the entitlements, as they're so-called. And the rest is divided roughly equally between, you know, 15% for defense, 15% for discretionary domestic programs, which have already been slashed in many cases. They're not going to be able to do this without very significant cutbacks in Social Security and Medicare. And they're already talking about a significant cut in defense, which doesn't have support even from a lot of the Republicans. So they've got some headaches. You know, Paul Ryan, when he was, before he was speaker, when he was uh, chair of the Ways and Means Committee, he put together these phony budgets that made all kinds of projections of sharp revenue increases because of the tax cuts and phony baloney changes in the law. It's much harder to do that now. Having said all that, the Holman rule. I think even though it has it was around for a century and brought in, brought out, and all of the rest of it, is very likely unconstitutional. The Constitution says there can be no bills of attainder, which means you cannot target individuals for punishment when you're making policy. So if they tried to use the Holman rule, for example, to cut the salary of Alejandro Mayorkas to $1, or Merrick Garland to $1. It would be challenged in the courts. Obviously, also, the House can't do this unilaterally. They can put these things into their appropriations bills, and then they're going to have to be approved by the Senate. But it's another place where they're going to look for bargaining and where we may have a greater possibility than of a government shutdown, because there's no way the Senate would agree to any of these things. And at the same time, You could also see them using it to try and cut the salaries for all the investigators working for the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Now, of course, they're going on this utterly absurd and fanciful war against eliminating gas stoves. And Twitter is filled with Jim Jordan and the other Republicans saying, you'll never take away my gas stove. That's the Consumer Product Safety Commission. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they hate, 
they could go after these, not just by cutting the funding generally, but by trying to cut the funding of the key people there. And it's a sideshow, but it's a reflection of how frivolous and destructive this rules package is and how much their intent, which we also see from the portion of the rules to create this committee to basically blow up the federal government, how much of this is just destructive and how little of it is a constructive or even positive approach to doing something in policy to solve the nation's problems. They don't have that, period. Yeah, I'd love to just read some of the words since uh, that's the name of our podcast, Words Matter, to just kind of give the words on what the House Representative kind of rules committee on the Republican side actually put out as their kind of propaganda. (laughs) I can't call it anything else than that. Two pages. It's actually illustrative to just show where people's heads are at, especially on the Rules Committee as they put this package out. Incoming Republican majorities rules will, number one, reopen the people's house. And this is, uh, I'm reading a quote, to shield her majority and protect her own power. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi used the coronavirus pandemic as an excuse to keep the house in an emergency lockdown for years, subject to her own whims and will while doling out partisan punishments. To bring back long overdue normalcy to House operations, the proposed rules will, and the use of proxy voting and remote committee proceedings, ensuring that all members will actually show up in person to fulfill the jobs they were elected and are expected to do. This is great. Norm, listen to this one. Eliminate the Democrat fines for failure of members to comply with unscientific mask mandates and security screenings before entering the House floor. Members should not face unnecessary disruptions as they carry out their constitutional duties. I'm not going to read the detail, but the other sections are labeled restore freedom and security, hold government accountable, ensure fiscal responsibility to combat inflation. That's the supermajority baked in there. And then build, finally, build a transparent and effective House of Representatives, all of which, by the way, I have seen no evidence of. So I'm curious to understand exactly how are you uh, building an effective House of Representatives when you couldn't even elect a speaker? So I'm very eager to see how all of these incredible principles get played out. But I, I brought up the very early one about reopening the people's house because it's just uh, everything from unscientific mask mandates where we have incredible data that supports that masks actually, had we put masks into place earlier that we would have saved, first of all, prevented probably millions of infections and saved countless lives. And then on top of that, I think it's just, you know, it's uh, it's someone who kind of, and Norm, you, you work with both House and Senate members very closely. So I'm curious, kind of, you know, just without naming names, like what are the Democrats and Republicans you talk to saying, I'm a Senate creature, Senate Democrats that I speak to and the staff in particular, who really kind of are the working engines of these things. One of the staff members, very senior, one of the chairs of the committees in the Senate, very senior, said, There are very, not only is there just very low expectations on legislation that can get through, it used to be the Senate was the problem. Now it's like, we really don't know what'll go through the House. But she is incredibly concerned that, and she gave me a a lot of pause when she said, you know, remember Kavita, we were scared about the Affordable Care Act being undone. What saved us is there was really no Republican plan to replace it. She said, they will undo something with no plan to replace it because the chaos that replaces it is actually the goal. And, and I thought about it and I'm not as concerned anymore about, you know, big wholesale parts of the ACA immediately getting repealed. But I think there's a point to where she's right, that if things get undone and mandatory spending and, you know, cut go and these things are actually in place, 
without some policies, even policies that we don't like as, as whatever party you might be, without some policies to take their place, we lose the architecture of government. And that actually is something to be afraid of. Norm, your thoughts, people you talk to, reactions from the Hill? There are a lot of people who are frightened. And, you know, I haven't had conversations with House Republicans. Most of them wouldn't talk to me uh, at this point, even the ones I, I know pretty well. But I have to believe that 17 or 18 elected in Biden districts are scared to death now that the whole image of their party is going to put them in an untenable place. And yet, they're probably all going to vote for these things because they're fearful first that they will be shunned, excommunicated, threatened if they don't go along, if they aren't team players, and they may have to suffer those consequences. I also know from talking to both parties in the Senate, the Republican Party in the Senate, and McConnell in particular, is, shall we say, not at all happy with Kevin McCarthy or the House Republicans. It's still the case. The Republicans are very likely to take the Senate in 2024. They have 12 up. Democrats have twice as many. The Democratic seats include places like Ohio and West Virginia. There are at least three or four very vulnerable seats, seats that could become more vulnerable, John Tester in in Montana as well, if, say, Manchin decides not to run, if Tester decided not to run. Sherrod Brown is a very strong candidate, but he won barely the last time, and Ohio seems to be becoming more Republican. But, you know, if the Republican Party's image is shredded and suburban voters are turned off, which had a lot to do with why Democrats did better than expected this time. Not only, you know, it's not likely that it would deeply jeopardize the Republicans' ability to hold all 12 of their seats, but it might make it more difficult for them to win some of the others. And it might mean that if they won a majority, it would be the the most slender sort, one seat, say. So we're going to see Senate Republicans doing whatever they can to avoid some of the worst things that could come to them, bills sent over by the House, appropriations that they would find very difficult to vote for, at least a large number of them. And McConnell also has to worry that some of his own crazies, the Marsha Blackburns and Rand Pauls and Ron Johnsons of the world, will be perfectly happy with what the House is doing. So we've got all of that. But what I am seeing more generally Kavita, is that the fear of default is palpable across a large number of places, including a lot of Senate Republicans and Democrats, including the White House. And one question that the Biden administration is going to have to answer is how aggressive they're going to be in fighting this. You know, there's a Jennifer Rubin of The Post did a piece playing on what Larry Tribe had written and said, which is there's a constitutional bar against default. The 14th Amendment explicitly says that the U.S. will pay its debts. So one way in which President Biden could go, if we're really getting close to this point, is to say, you know what? 
I am just going to order the Treasury to create two or three trillion dollar titanium coins that are going to give us enough money that we don't have to worry about the debt ceiling. And obviously that would end up in the courts, but he would have constitutional protection. Barring that, the idea that Kevin McCarthy would be the guy who would pull his party back from the brink with a potential default would cave over Social Security and Medicare cuts as they demand them. And of course, then wouldn't last in the speakership for a nanosecond after that. That's fanciful. So we've got a real fear here. Plus, today, Mike McCall, the chair of the Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Committee, Marjorie Taylor Greene, introduced a resolution calling for a full public audit of everything going to Ukraine and with hostility towards Zelensky and Ukraine. The Defense Department appropriations, the ability that we have through a crucial period, through the rest of this winter especially, to continue to give Ukraine what it needs. We're going to see a major distraction here. And, you know, the number of headaches caused by this radical group, just amazing. It's not only amazing, but uh, it's, I, I actually haven't seen anything like it. I mean, people that I've asked, they said that, you know, people even who kind of study, uh, you know, Congress as a profession have also said, so whenever we enter into such a unpredictable kind of time period, there's always some element of unpredictability, right? And then nobody could have had a pandemic and these kind of issues kind of predicted. However, entering this degree of unpredictability with this degree of chaos with also, let me, let me just say, which we'll get to in our member section, I want to close and, and kind of wrap up with also now this overhang of, you know, a very kind of strong Biden presidency, which was getting stronger with some of this and getting a little bit of like unfortunate taint. And I'll hope in our members only section, hopefully we can probe as to why the special counsel and investigation into the Biden documents is distinctly different from the Mar-a-Lago investigations. But anyway, having said that, that just also throws a little bit more chaos into this. It's, it's all setting up to be what could potentially be 118th Congress like we've never seen. And that's not necessarily good for the American people, no matter what party you are. So I'll, I'll kind of close us out on, on that note with also a little bit of a ray of hope because I think one of my like happy moments in watching the 15 rounds of trying to get Kevin McCarthy was the fact that we had C-SPAN on the floor, being able to put their cameras wherever they wanting, wanted to and getting a, you know, a pretty good look at uh, someone trying to assault Matt Gates and, and being held back by his own Republican party, watching AOC like interacting with other members of the Freedom Caucus and trying to kind of understand like, oh yeah, actually members of Congress probably do have to talk to each other and occasionally uh, make nice with each other, even if it's just to laugh at Matt Gates on the floor. And then the third is, is really kind of watching the Democrats hold their two-thirds. I mean, there was no question that there should be some pride in Democrats holding strong, not just for their support of Hakeem Jeffries, but showing up to hold strong and making sure some of them had to leave at the end of the week. I know they were short a couple of Democrats, but at that point, the deals had been cut for Kevin McCarthy's bid for speakership. So we knew where this was going to end up on a Friday night. And I think it's a good sign that even without Nancy Pelosi there, I think that there'll still be some promise for at least the Democrats on the House. So I'll stop. Well, let, let's thank our listeners there. 
stop and remind everyone just to thank you for joining us. And as we're doing each week of the show, we'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to it. We're on all your favorite podcast players. And we've talked about our members only section. We'd love for you to join. If you're not, it's a member of the DSR network. You can get access to not just our bonus segments, but any of the bonus segments across our incredible podcasts. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network and our executive producer for the network, Chris Cotmar, and our producer for this show is the excellent Grant Paper. Our next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feed around January 20th, and we look forward to seeing you then. Welcome back to our members-only section of Words Matter. We want to thank you, thank you, thank you to our members. We love having you as part of the family and encourage you to give us feedback on what you want to hear in the members only section. We wanted to focus a little bit on the special counsel that uh, the Department of Justice appointed Merrick Garland for investigating a sitting president, President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. And let me give a little bit of background. And Norm, it would be amazing to hear how you kind of process this. I'm not going to lie. When I first saw some of the headlines several days ago come across my kind of news alerts, I thought, hmm, you know, that's interesting, but not shocking. And also troubling at the time they didn't, they they distinctly said that there were no classified documents, et cetera. And then as more news came out, and especially Merrick Garland appointed former U.S. attorney Robert Hur as a special counsel to investigate Joe Biden's possession of classified government documents off government property What's at stake here is about 10 documents that they found inside of a private office in Washington, D.C., one of Biden's private offices prior to him taking the presidency. And some reportedly had top secret classification. And then there was a second group of documents in the garage in Biden's Delaware home that were found. And again, not quite sure about levels of classification. Something I learned from the Mar-a-Lago classification is that top secret doesn't necessarily mean exactly the same thing. Anyway, it's a spe- it's the second time a special counsel has been appointed to handle classified documents, the other of course being Donald Trump's document possession and the ties specifically to the January 6th insurrection. All right, Norm. I don't know Robert her uh b- b- tell me if you have any uh insight into who this man is, but also how you might see in my head I did key differences between these two investigations and how I kind of see the the differences, one of which is the White House and Biden in general have been incredibly transparent and cooperative, which is a distinct 180 from the posture from Mar-a-Lago. That's one to point out. But Norm, your thoughts and uh, tell me if you do actually know anything about Robert Hur, what we should take from the appointment of him as special counsel. Well, let's start with Robert Hur. I do not know him, but I know a lot of people who know him fairly well, some who've interacted with him legally and otherwise. He is, first of all, a hardcore movement conservative, very hardcore. And one thing he did while in service that raised a lot of hackles in the Justice Department was that he did a press conference from the White House during the Trump years, which is a no-no. Having said that, I mean, people see him as having a lot of integrity, and those who've worked with him say that you should expect him to be fair. But it was an unusual appointment. Under other circumstances, I would have imagined picking a completely unpolitical person from within the Justice Department. Her is not a career person. He was a U.S. attorney. He's been out in private practice. We can speculate. And we have to note here, 
we don't know what the Justice Department knows. We do know on the surface that there are these stark differences. And clearly, in a lot of ways, surface or not, there are stark differences. Trump slow walked. His people lied about whether they had documents. They've lied repeatedly. They turned over some. They clearly didn't turn over others. We have lots of evidence that suggests that Trump ordered some boxes moved from a storage area to his own office. We know that he was talking about some of these documents in public. There are serious issues of obstruction of justice there. We don't have that with Biden. The difference in volume of documents, maybe 13 or 14 compared to hundreds and hundreds of pages. And we don't know exactly what's in them. Uh, And of course, at this point, they would be six years old. It's very unlikely that Joe Biden was going through boxes and picking stuff out and packing them up himself. If anybody is in jeopardy here, it might be some staffer who was careless in the process of doing this. I must say the fact that we got an immediate reaction when they found these papers in his Penn office, University of Pennsylvania office, and that was you know, a delay because the stuff had been sitting there and they finally decided he's president, we should close up some of these offices. And they immediately notified the archives and then it went to the Justice Department. It was the way you're supposed to handle these things. Absolutely. That that was done in November and they didn't immediately search everywhere for other documents and only disclosed the documents that were in his garage in uh, Delaware in December and into January. And I I gather this was not the White House acting, it was Biden's attorneys made this worse in terms of the public image. It has little to do with any kind of a legal case. And what prosecutors tell me is that under other circumstances, in the absence of Trump and Mar-a-Lago, this never would have gotten to a point of a special counsel or anything other than innocent mistake and stupid and uh, chastising people for doing it, but nothing beyond that. What it does suggest to me, Kavita, in the dispatch with which Attorney General Garland moved to deal with this, to first pick for the initial investigation a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, then to pick a movement conservative former Trump U.S. attorney as special counsel, it suggests to me that it is very, very likely we have an indictment of Trump coming on these matters, and that this is to make it clear that there is no special treatment being given to Joe Biden because it's a Democratic administration. I would be stunned after all of this if there were not an indictment involving obstruction of justice and some of the other charges, whether it includes the Espionage Act or not, I don't know, but the Mar-a-Lago stuff. Thank you for just giving hopefully a little bit of validation to what I saw as at least the kind of highlight here. Again, as you point out, the posture of not just the two men, Biden versus Trump, but like kind of the activity of their administrations. I I just want to ask this and I'm asking, I have an answer, I think, but I'm really curious. I wonder if some of our listeners are too. Why would Garland choose a former Trump appointee who, as you rightly pointed out, I didn't want to get into this because I didn't know the man. So I did as much as I could Google Um, But then I started asking some former Trump people that I knew, and they kind of pointed out some of these things that he had done. Why would Garland do this? 
It may be that he consulted with people in the Justice Department who had worked with her, who said, he'll be fair. And it may be that he wanted to bend over doubly backwards to protect the integrity of the Justice Department by picking somebody who was a movement conservative who could not be attacked for having a a liberal bias or a Biden bias. But it's still unusual. And you always have to worry, even if somebody has a reputation of being fair, we know the, I mean, there are multiple examples here, the latest being John Durham, who had a long distinguished career in the Justice Department before he destroyed his reputation with this quixotic Trump-backed attempt to trash the administration, which resulted in nothing. But Ken Starr, people thought Ken Starr was a man of integrity. And the Ken Starr turned out to be a latter-day Inspector Javert. So you always have to worry under these circumstances. The ultimate judgment is made by the attorney general, but this attorney general is not going to refuse to act if an independent counsel comes to him and says, this requires prosecution. It doesn't mean prosecution of Joe Biden. And obviously now we have all that ample precedent that you don't charge a president while in office. Um, but you know, one part of this is, it's, as we see with all of these, These young staffers, the ones who probably were charged with packing up the office, and CNN, by the way, has a piece saying that it's, you know, not an excuse. There was chaos. They had not planned for uh, all the things they needed to do in leaving the White House in the vice president's office. They were, you know, with time ticking off before they had to leave on January 20th, they were just scrambling around to get all that stuff together. So it was sloppiness probably more than anything else. But you're going to have to have young people making very little money lawyering up. They're going to be, you know, asked questions. They're going to be under investigation. It's going to be a lot of collateral damage here. That would be true with any figure. But with her, I expect a very aggressive move. Yeah, and I think uh, as I tried to rationalize, you know, why pick someone like him, To just to add on to your point that. There's just there's one thing that came away after reading about him. There's no question in my mind that he will not be swayed by a sitting Democratic president. What all the, and all the parts that go with it. So to your point, like you know, he can evade that. I will. I will just express my own frustration that it feels like there are other conservatives that probably would have been a little bit more reasonable because this is certainly uh, obviously it's a high profile. You know, this is going to be a high profile investigation and. Like most investigations, whether it's Mueller or Ken Starr or anybody, uh, like a lot of these investigations, you know, in order to do these investigations well, both kind of parties end up having to be disappointed. Not only the person whom which you were investigating, in this case Biden, but kind of the attorney general who like asked for this. Like everybody, it kind of walks away disappointed. It's just a matter of how disappointed you are. So this is um, I want to I want to kind of bring the kind of investigations uh, a little bit to a close, but ask you a little a kind of a theme that's related to the Biden documents, but investigations in general. We know that there are going to be a number of oversight investigations. And as you mentioned, a very busy, like underpaid staff in that White House. We know that the same holds for agencies and Congress. Norm, tell me what you think the year is going to be like for not just, you know, how sitting inside of the Biden administration, when I sat inside of an administration and there was a change of control and change of power, 
it it affected us. We knew that there would be FOIAs and all sorts of Freedom of Information Act requests and all sorts of things. I think this is going to be a next level. What are those kind of like, do you think you'll see an exodus of people from the agencies? Do you think this is kind of the thing that'll break a lot of people's back, including some cabinet members who are going to be constantly called forward to, you know, basically serve and sort of serve in front of oversight committee investigations and panels? What does it look like to be in the administration now? I think we're going to see a shit show uh, across the board. We're going to have every Republican committee and subcommittee trying to use its full authority to subpoena documents, to call people in for questions. The same will be true in the White House. The one sort of saving grace here, if there is any, is the way the Trump administration handled all of this and the way members of Congress handled it. Jim Jordan refusing to respond to a subpoena by the January 6th committee. The Trump administration stonewalling requests for documents and subpoenas. There's ample reason for uh, Biden administration officials to thumb their noses at a lot of what's being asked. And, you know, the response is going to be people uh, jumping up and down and Tucker Carlson will get apoplectic, but they can limit some of this damage. They can't limit all of it. And I think you're right that the fortunately for Democrats, they've got 51 in the Senate. We can come back to something we talked about before, which is the 51 as opposed to even 50 means that you get one extra member on every committee. And that means you can move more quickly than you would otherwise to confirm nominations. And there are going to be plenty of those. There always are a lot of people leaving. There's an exodus the second two years of an administration. People are tired and tapped out and they're looking for other things to do. What the Republicans in the House are going to do, as you said, is to accelerate that pace somewhat. And then it becomes absolutely critical that you can get the rest of your team filled out with replacements. And I think we are going to see people leaving because Who wants to take on this additional headache beyond the difficulty of doing the job you want to do yourself? And we cannot fail to mention the fact that to whatever degree the Biden administration wants to bypass Congress, given this terror that's going to happen, and take executive action, they have a looming problem and threat from a Supreme Court that will limit as much as possible what they can do through executive power. I think it's a great note to end on and uh, both a hopeful, but also still I walk away a little, a little scared and disturbed. And I'll just say for my piece, as you should um, be scared. I I know a lot of people who are both on the Hill and on the administration trying to leave. And so this is not going to be shocking if we see a larger than expected exodus, because at some point life is too short and I don't blame them. So I want to just close in thanking our members for listening. We will continue to, inform and educate, and hopefully all of you can stay healthy and well. Take care.